Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. And you have notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to follow along with those. As we looked last week at the first part of Romans chapter 2, we saw that the things we judge in other people are oftentimes the very things that we ourselves do. Um, why do we do sometimes uh, those things? It's, it's, we think they're perfectly right when we do them, but then we judge someone else for doing the exact same thing. So it's almost like <clears throat> we look at ourselves through rose-colored glasses, uh, but we look at everyone else through a magnifying glass. In the last half of Romans 2, uh, Paul reminds us again that everyone is accountable to God. And he outlines for us the, the, the destiny of unbelievers, and he speaks to Christ followers. And, um, and here's what he says. This is maybe my summary, if you will, of the, what we're going to look at today. That uh, in spite of being familiar with what God desires, like his word, uh, having his commandments, People are guilty because they fail to abide by his word, fail to live it. Uh, it's a little bit like James says in the beginning of, of James chapter 1. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So we don't want to deceive ourselves. So this passage is talking about those who have put their confidence in their religion primarily to save them. Uh, what Paul is saying, and this is on your outline, is that if we don't act on what we know, uh, we're no better off than unbelievers, than non-believers. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. Um, I don't know if you've read that book, but it's, uh, uh, it's a good book. It's worth reading. And it's about the nature of heaven and hell and the eternal consequences of our choices and our actions. And there's a passage in the book that uh, perfectly portrays the, the, a characteristic that's common among people who reject Christ and are lost, and that is a misleading religious confidence. And so Lewis makes this point in a conversation between a resident of hell who apparently doesn't know he's in hell and an old acquaintance who's visiting him from heaven. So the resident of hell makes the, the comment um, that his old friend who's visiting from heaven has indeed become rather narrow-minded. Uh, and this is kind of towards the end of his life. Obviously, they're in, 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 in eternity. And his, his friend has become narrow-minded because he believes in a literal heaven and hell, which is what the Bible teaches. So Lewis knew from Scripture that no one will be in hell without knowing that he's there. But this conversation, I think, captures the misleading religious confidence of the people Lewis calls the damned. And so here's how it goes. The visitor from heaven tries to kindly point out to his friend that he's in hell, and he says, is it possible you don't know where you're at? Now that you mention it, I don't think we ever do give it a name. What do you call it? Well, we call it hell. Oh, there's no need to be profane. 
Uh, my dear boy, I may not be very orthodox in your sense of the word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. Discuss hell reverently? I meant what I said. You are in hell. Oh, go on, my dear boy, go on. It's so like you. you no doubt you'll tell me why in your view I was sent here. I'm not angry. But don't you know you're there because you're an apostate. Are you serious? Perfectly. This is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions? Even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken? So that's where I'll end it. If you want to read the whole conversation, which is really good, I encourage you to read the book, uh, The Great Divorce. But at some point in the future, when people stand before the great white throne for judgment, maybe there will be people there who are stunned that they're even there. Uh, Jesus himself made it very clear in Matthew chapter 7 when he said this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you Away from me, you evildoers. So it may be hard to imagine that sincere religious people are, are lost, but this and other passages in the scriptures indicate that this is so. And there, are some, there will be some who will be judged who, who are orthodox people. They know the, the Apostles' Creed. They recite the Apostles' Creed. They recite the Nicene Creed. Uh, the part of it that we know that is about Christ. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of him before all ages. God of God and light of light, very God of very God. They know this in their heads, but they don't know it in their hearts. So follow along in your Bible as we read Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. 
nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And this is his word. So Paul underlines a couple of dangers for us here. And the first one, uh, number one on your outline, is overconfidence. Paul is saying, just because you have the truth in your mind doesn't mean you have it in your life. And you see this sense of privilege in verses 17 and 18. I'll, I'll read them again. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. So in, in verses 17 and 18, there are five different aspects of privilege that, that Paul talks about. And, and these are what the Jews thought would, would make them look good before God. But that's not the reality. And so you've got it on your outline. They call themselves Jews. They were so proud of, of their heritage. And this is how they identified themselves. Uh, they, they relied on their possessions of the law for giving them their special standing with God. Uh, they boasted in being true people of God. They were God's favorite. They knew they were God's favorites. They believed that they had special insight into God's will through the Ten Commandments. And because they had the law, they believed that they were morally superior to the ignorant Gentiles. And so it's true that compared to the Gentiles, these things did make them look very good. And they thought made them acceptable to God. And of course, this directly applies to us. We can't think, well, this is just about the Jews. Hey, this is, this is about us. Uh, it's so easy to be overly confident because we have the Bible, because we know the Bible. You know, when I was in high school, I, I played football, and one of the coaches was, uh, he had such a foul mouth, and he loved intimidating all the players, and uh, he was not a fun coach to be coached by. And I had just become a Christian, and I noticed that this foul-mouthed coach had a ring with a cross on it. And so I asked him about it. I said, hey, what's the, what's the ring for, coach, that you wear? And, and what is that, what, what's that about? And he said, oh, I got it some years ago when I memorized a thousand verses. And I'm like, you foul-mouthed coach? Why, you memorized all these verses? What do they mean to you? In my, in my mind, I was thinking, whatever. This guy doesn't really live these out. So, so what does it mean if you memorize a thousand verses, but it doesn't change your life? So you've got this on your, on your outline. We can have all the Bible knowledge in the world and still have a heart of ice toward God. And so we always have to be looking at our heart and saying is, do I have a relationship with God? Am I growing in my relationship with God? Our Bible knowledge can puff us up so much that we get deluded into thinking that somehow we have a corner on the truth and that God loves especially us and, and not, he doesn't love the people that don't know as much as I know. And that leads to the, the deadly pride of arrogance. Look at that, that Paul mentions in verses 19 and 20. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So think about that. One author wrote this. He said, if practiced to perfection, any virtue we have can become a vice. Honesty creates cruelty. Self-respect, vainglory. Knowledge, condescension. And justice creates heartlessness. And then this author ends by saying, in fact, every virtue can become an idol that can lead its followers to a warped reverence of that idol. People who have found this kind of pride are, are, are miserable to be around. We all know that. And there's, this is definitely applied to the Jews that Paul was writing about. They looked down on the non-Jews. Uh, and of course, the Gentiles sensed it, as anybody would. And they resented it. And the same is true for us. Jesus warns us of self-centeredness. He warns us of self-righteousness. And to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus said this parable in Luke 18. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, I heard about a, a Bible study leader that was teaching on this passage. And uh, one time he said a little bit arrogantly himself, aren't you glad that we are not like that Pharisee? And we have to make sure that our soul is not in danger because you know what's really easy for us to say is, wow, I'm glad I'm not like that Bible study leader. God wants us to examine our own hearts before him. Peter, who saw Jesus get down on his hands and knees and, and, and wash his disciples' feet, wrote this in 1 Peter. He said, all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Pride is not just one sin among many sins. Pride is, is like the root underneath them all. It, it, all sins are connected to pride. Pride is like a, a demonic spiritual petri dish that grows all kinds of bad stuff in your life. Many might struggle with bitterness or be angry <clears throat> against something that somebody said to us or, or did to us. And we let it fester and we let it grow and it becomes bitterness. But this is what we have to remember. You can't stay angry and resentful at someone if you feel superior to them. Unless you feel superior to them. There's no bitterness without pride. 
Because what we're saying is, I would never do that to anybody, what this person has done to me. And remember, we're looking at ourselves with rose-colored glasses. We're looking at the other person with a magnifying glass. If your life is distorted by anger, it's because pride is at the root of it. And, and here's what makes pride so deadly. On top of everything else, it's like pride hides itself. Pride is like the, the carbon monoxide of sin. It's killing you without the ability of you knowing it's happening. It's odorless. It's like the more proud you are, the less proud you think you are. Because pride hides itself to the person who's proud. Everyone else sees it. But to the person who's proud, it's hidden. It's like we have a, a throne in our lives. And we need to determine who's on the throne in our life. Is it me? Is it my ego? Or am I regularly dethroning myself and putting Christ, making sure that Christ is on the throne of my life? I, I, it's, it's something that I maybe don't just do daily. Maybe I need to do it hourly. Maybe I need to do it minute by minute. Lord, please be on the throne of my life. I, I, I confess my sin before you, whatever it is, to make sure that pride is not taking over my life. So an attitude of superiority is never a sign of God's grace. It's like Paul puts on his lawyer hat and he asks five pointed questions in verses 21 and 23 and you've got them on your outline written out. You who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach uh, that one not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, uh, though through, through the, your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You know, it was common knowledge that Jewish teachers and leaders were guilty of these very offenses. And even if they were not done overtly, spiritually, they were all guilty. One commentator said this about first century Jewish leaders. He said, everyone knew of cases where the most orthodox had left loopholes in their business dealings for a little refined stealing. The Talmud itself charged three of its most illustrious rabbis with adultery. And while they detested idolatry and the dishonor of God, they had robbed God's temple, this commentator says, by profaning sacred things, committing subtle forms of sacrilege. So these folks, like we said last week, wanted to believe that everything was cool with them, but it wasn't. They weren't okay. Their lives did not measure up at all to the truth that they had. And so in other words, and again, it's on your outline, knowledge alone, even great spiritual or biblical knowledge, does not win God's approval. Uh, men, if you were at the prayer breakfast yesterday, this is exactly what Nathan talked about. Uh, we, we can't just have the knowledge of the word. We need, to, we need to live it out. We need to make sure that we're making it work in our lives. And then in verse 24, Paul ends this section with another charge. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, maybe the best example of this is is David, when Nathan confronted David with his sin against Bathsheba. And in no uncertain terms, Nathan says, you know, by doing what you have done, David, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. 
That's scary. David's enemies saw his hypocrisy and because of that treated him with scorn. And God, of course God forgave David's sin, but the consequences lasted. We need to understand that that's, uh, there are consequences to that. It's, it's not the right thinking that impresses God. It's the right living that comes from right thinking. It should come from, from right thinking. You know, it's oftentimes people in the world who have higher expectations for Christians than we do for ourselves. And we need to realize that and realize that we're living our lives before them. And so the first danger under, Paul underlines is overconfidence. The second one is a false security of association. That's number two on your outline. We can think that we're acceptable to God because we have all the correct theological answers. That's number one. Number two is we can think that we're somehow right before God because we know all the right people. And maybe you think because you're a Baptist, you're safe. Uh, that's not the way it works. I heard one time a Baptist evangelist who was frustrated at meeting all these guys who were Baptists and, and weren't believers. And, and he was sharing the gospel with him. And in the midst of his frustration, he said, you know, I think there are going to be enough Baptists in hell to start a Bible study. The Jews somehow believed that they were secure because they were God's chosen special people even though through circumcision. And one Jewish commentator said of, of, of the Pentateuch said this, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see, will see hell. Another uh, Jewish commentator says flat out, circumcision saves from hell. That's where they got their wrong thinking. And what Paul is saying in verse 25 is this, circumcision, which is this surgical ritual that marks one as a, a male, as a Jew, is great if you are living in accord with God's word and his law. But if it doesn't, it's worse than, being, uh, than, than not being circumcised. In other words, circumcision has nothing to do with justifying us before God. On the other hand, if, if the meaning of it was ignored and the, of, of circumcision, it was like a man wearing a, a wedding ring while he's committing adultery. It means nothing. So what's Paul saying in verses 26 and 27? Look in your Bibles at those verses. He's saying this, that, that the reverse is also true. The uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as being circumcised. In fact, better. Uh, in other words, it's better to keep God's law uncircumcised than to break it circumcised. Paul is saying it's the mark of God in your heart, not a knife on the skin that makes you a true Jew. I, I knew of a guy one time who went to Israel and actually made an argument before the courts using these verses that he was really Jewish and, and should be able to become a citizen of Israel. Uh, it didn't work. They threw it out. <laughs> so... Um, but the greatest insult to a Jewish man was to call him uncircumcised. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. But in other words, outward acts, and this is on your outline, outward acts alone do not justify anyone. Their actions must match their profession of faith. So how should we see this at work in our lives? Well, you know, we all have our, and this is on your outline, we all have our own substitutes for the word circumcision. 
Things that we might tend to worship ourselves. Maybe it's church membership. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's confirmation. Maybe it's a denomination. That's the great mistake of of anybody in any religion. Catholics, Jews, Protestants. When when asked about their relationship with God, they, they respond with with the evidence of their relationship being, you know, we ask uh, somebody, are you a believer? And they say, of course, I'm a member of this or that church. Or we ask somebody, are you a believer? And they say, I'm Catholic. Does that answer your question? Or we'll say, you know, are you a believer? And they'll say, well, yeah, I was, I was baptized. They point to these outward acts that don't mean a thing to God. And so one author wrote this. He said, some people... See, people's idea of Christianity reminds me of a treadmill. All the time I see determined Christians climb onto the religious demands of their religion and they start running faster and faster, working, striving, hoping, pleading, and praying that they might please God or win his favor or maybe just cause him to smile at them for a little bit. With so much distance between the perfection of, that God demands and where we stand, this commentator ended by saying, certainly we'll have to work hard, or we think we do, with all our effort to close that gap. That's religion on a treadmill. It's, it's like you're going fast and you're going nowhere fast. John says this in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do some things. Not what it says. It says you can do nothing, nothing. That should be our prayer. Lord, I want to make sure that I am connected to the vine. You know the, the list of things that we have? I'll tell you, God's list is right there. Remain in the vine. Stay plugged into Jesus. The only thing on our list is Jesus and making sure that we are connected to him, that we have a relationship with him. That's what God wants. That's the one thing and the only thing on any list that we should have as Christians. And then finally, what it comes down to, and number three on your outline, is having a right heart before God. Look at verses 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. So a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, paraphrased these verses like this. He wrote this, for He is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is church membership, which is centered in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly, and church membership is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. In other words, and this is on your outline, people can sit in church and look like the real thing, but their hearts are set on other things. And so we're always examining our heart. We're always saying, Lord, what is my motive? I had that for a long time on my wall in my office so I could sit at my desk and stare at it. What's my motive? It's like I said last week, Billy Graham said one time, I don't know if I've ever done anything from a completely pure motive. And so we always have to examine our motives. 
We always have to say, Lord, I, I want to do this for your glory, not for mine. I, I want to do this and praise you with it, not me. And so we need to always examine our, our motives before the Lord. In other words, you've got this again on your outline. People can sit in church and look like the real thing, but their hearts are set on other things. We all struggle with this. The prophet Ezekiel warned of this in Ezekiel 33. Indeed to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. So these people were coming to listen to Ezekiel, and it was just for show. It was just to be entertained. They had no intention of taking Ezekiel's words and putting them into practice. We don't come here on Sunday morning for entertainment. We come to worship God. I know that's, I think that's in most of our hearts. We come to praise him. When we hold communion, we get to, to share that together. It's not for us, it's, it's for him. It's for us to remember him, but it's for his glory, for, for, for worshiping him. We worship him as we sing the, the great songs that we sing. We worship him as we listen to his word and, and take his word into our hearts and, and then into our lives and live it out. And so there are some great questions that come from the verses that we've looked at that can serve as some questions of self-examination. You have them on the outline. You know, we hopefully, as we bear the name of Christ, uh, you know that, that uh, the word Christian literally means little Christ. We are representing him as we live our lives. And so do people look at you and see Jesus in you that, by the way you act, by the way you think, by the way you talk? And so that we're following Jesus as part of a local church. We're invited into a family to hold each other accountable. And so the question is, as you are called Christian, does Jesus receive the glory or do you? We've been chosen by God to bring his message to the rest of the world. That's ultimately what, what Paul's talking about here and, and throughout Romans. And we're to protect and steward the word of God. The written word, the 66 books of the Bible. It's a great privilege to be given the word. As Christ followers then, we, we have this great responsibility to obey it, to live it out. Jesus said it twice. Once in John, uh, once in John I think it's 13, once in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's how we express our love to him. And so it's a great privilege to be given the word as Christ followers, we have this responsibility. So the question on the outline, do you rely on the grace of God in living out his word? Romans 5 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have the spirit of God living in us. So do you boast in the cross or do you boast in what you've done? Paul said in Galatians 6, I want to boast only in the cross. In Romans um, Oh yeah, the, the next question is right there. What part are you taking to help fulfill God's plan to reach the world with the good news? You say, yeah, well, we send out our missionaries. We pray for our missionaries. That's great. We need to keep doing that. But what are you doing in terms of you sharing with your friends, your, the people that, that you live around, the people that you work with, the people that you go to school with? On, on every level, how are we sharing the good news with the people around us? And finally, do you practice the truth you preach so that the world might be won by your life and by your words? You know, some people say, well, I just want to 
live my life. I'll let people ask me questions. Even Jesus didn't think that, think that way. And, and so we can't think that we can just live our lives. We have to be able to say words and explain to people why we live the way we do and what Jesus means to us. Here's the thing. God is never fooled. On your outline, the truth is that religious people, if they rely on their religion, will ultimately be lost. People might mouth the right things and have perfect theology, but will be told by Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. What Paul was saying was not just a New Testament idea. Deuteronomy 30 says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. Uh, Jeremiah exhorted the people to deal with their hearts and saying in Jeremiah 4, you've got it on your outline, let's read it out loud together. Jeremiah 4 verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing and let's read that one out loud together from Colossians 2, 9 through 11. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. There it is. It's the circumcision of our hearts done by Christ that matters. And so on your outline again, the death of Christ has made circumcision unnecessary. Our commitment to God is now written on our hearts. It's not on our bodies. And so Christ sets us free from all desires uh, by a real working, all evil desires, by a real working in our hearts. Not a, a bodily working, but a working in our hearts. It's by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we put off the sinful nature and live for Christ. Paul knew what he was talking about because of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. We all know how radical that was. We even, you know, it's become even a, a saying, yeah, we've had a Damascus road experience. And so we could, we could say it this way. In chapter one, Paul proves that Gentiles are without excuse. And in chapter two, the focus is really on Jews. The Jews are without excuse. In other words, we are all without excuse before God. And in chapter three, Paul will speak about the whole world being under sin and condemnation and how we all desperately need Christ. And we do. You know, the writer to the Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. So maybe his word has in some way pierced your heart this morning and you need to respond to him. Don't miss this opportunity as, as you respond to God to draw close to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you do in our hearts. Thank you for giving us the bad news about judgment, the bad news that none of us can stand, that, that we are all totally depraved, that we can't even respond to you unless it's by your grace. We thank you for your son Jesus that he died on the cross for us. In, a sense, in that sense, he was circumcised for us. He was cut off 
for us so that now in him we can have new hearts. And we thank you for that. Father, we ask that you would please help us to live out your word, to make us to be like your son Jesus, to have the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit that would would come with what we believe and what we know. And we ask that you would do that for Jesus' sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it. God bless you and please greet the people around you and again, thank them for being here.